Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod and my name is Shirley Alcius. I am here with Professor Dahi McShihi. Dahi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Uh, I joined Queen's University Belfast in September last year as the first professor of law and innovation. Uh, I work in the area of media law, law and technology. Um, I teach courses at the university in those fields and I have a particular interest in how the media industries are governed and regulated. So in that context, I've recently contributed a blog post to the law school's Brexit Law NI on the topic of broadcasting and Brexit. And I know you have a book out. That's right. Medium Law is my book on differences between media technologies, I guess. And it was published by Routledge last year. Okay. So Dahi, um, today we're talking about broadcasting and Brexit. One of the things we're talking about, the importance of broadcasting in, in the UK. You spoke on your blog about the country of origin principle. Can you give us a little bit more explanation about what that is? Sure. The country of origin principle, it's not unique to broadcasting law, but it's a very important uh, part of it. It's a European Union idea that where a particular service provider is regulated in one of the member states of the European Union, that in effect, and with some small exceptions, gives it access to operate in all the other states of the union without going through a separate regulatory system in each of those states. So, for example, if a television station is established in the UK and regulated by the broadcasting regulator here, Ofcom, then that will suffice for its operations in all the other states of the European Union. You have Ofcom who regulates everyone in the UK, and I believe there's about 1,200 plus stations that are broadcasting stations operating outside in the UK right now? That's right. In terms of television, it's well over a thousand. And uh, that's by far the largest number of of providers in the European Union. So the UK has been very successful in attracting broadcasters from around the world to set up their base in the UK and therefore be regulated uh, by the UK broadcasting regulator, Ofcom. Many of those channels are uh, in other languages, are operating okay. in one or more member states of the European Union. And that's possible because in 1989, the then European Economic Community mm-hmm. adopted the Television Without Frontiers directive. And the idea of that directive was to create a single market in broadcasting. So you would have television stations set up in all states of what is now the Union, and they would be able to compete. And they'd be able to compete on a level playing field. All the national systems had to follow some common European rules. Um, But then there's also the option for national regulators to add on certain rules of their own. And if you're, for instance, a television station from the United States trying to break into the European market, what you want to do is follow one set of rules. And for many international broadcasters, uh, the choice was made to to go by the rules of the United Kingdom. Brexit is going to mean that the UK no longer follows the EU rules. And so the union rules aren't going to apply. How does that affect broadcasting? The 
ability of broadcasters to operate across the European Union depends on them being established in one state of the Union. So if, for instance, a broadcaster is established in Canada and has no business presence in the European Union, then at least in theory, it would have to go through the regulatory system of each member state of the European Union. Because although, for instance, the the legal system of France can't block access from a UK established broadcaster at the moment, after Brexit, and if there's no agreement for continued cooperation in the broadcasting area, uh, then a UK established broadcaster could face quite a number of regulatory hurdles. And then it would have a choice. Would it stay established in the UK and possibly have to adapt its programming for each of the re- of the different regulatory systems across the European Union? Or instead, would it move to a member state that continues to be in the European Union and therefore continue to benefit from um, the country of origin principle? So what do you think is more possible? Are they going to try to stay within the UK and the UK is going to try to expand that? Or do you think it's going to move to uh, an EU member state? It depends on whether the UK and the European Union are able to come to some form of agreement on this. Um, For many broadcasters, they've been established in the UK since the Television Without Frontiers directive, which is nearly 30 years ago. They've got facilities, they've got staff, they've got offices. They've also benefited, in some cases, from a fairly light regulatory system in the UK. So, for instance, many of the commercial broadcasters operating in Scandinavia Mm -hmm. uh, have been established in the UK since since they came on the air. So it would be a very major change. And it could be to their detriment, because moving, for instance, to Sweden or to Denmark could mean having to comply with tighter rules around content or advertising and so on. Uh, So it would be a big change to make. From the point of view of the broadcasters, I think their preference would be that the UK would continue to participate in the European broadcasting uh, system. That would be the easiest route. But we don't really have much much to go on here. if we look, for instance, at trade law, broadcasting regulation tends not to be covered under trade law. Trade law has historically focused on trade in goods and to some extent services, mm-hmm. but many international trade treaties exclude broadcasting. Uh, and that allows, for instance, the European Union to have its own approach to broadcasting regulation without giving unfettered access to, say, broadcasters from the United States. Um, if the EU and the US had a fi- had a free trade deal that included broadcasting, then US broadcasters wouldn't have to be established in the EU at all. They would simply have to follow US rules. Uh, And the EU has often resisted that in order, at the behest of many member states, who want to protect national culture, linguistic Mm -hmm. diversity and so on. So if the UK is to negotiate a position where broadcasters can can continue to be established in the UK, but still have access to European markets, that will be a, a, a tough negotiation and it would be without precedent in the world of international trade law. Recently in the news, um, I think earlier this week or late last week, there was talks between um, Theresa May and about broadcasting. Broadcasting industry right now is about a billion pound industry. So it is sizable in in what it brings into the economy. If there is an agreement, what kind of creative solutions do you think are going to help bring that agreement to pass a key to stay in the UK? The short answer is we don't know yet. Um, The longer answer is that the legal text that's being worked out at the moment between the European Union and the United Kingdom does not yet have specific provisions in relation to broadcasting. 
So what you've rightly identified there is the Prime Minister's political commitment to negotiate something in re- in respect of broadcasting. Uh, this was seen by many in the industry as considerably overdue. There had been reports by parliamentary committees, by lobby groups and so on, ever since Brexit, pointing out that this would be a significant issue, perhaps to the same scale as the position of the financial services industry, which similarly has quite a number of international operators based in the city of London. Um, now, what we are seeing being negotiated at the moment relates to the UK's more general trading relationship with the European Union. From what the Prime Minister has recently said, we would expect that a later phase of negotiations might well try and add some specific clauses in relation to broadcasting. Perhaps a template for this is the way that the related question of intellectual property is being worked out, because the area of of IP law is an area of quite significant European integration. You can apply, for instance, for a trademark that operates across the European Union. And the way in which the UK trademark system would interact with the EU trademark system is one of the topics currently being negotiated. Uh, so certainly that's the, the way it might well go. The difficulty the UK might face is whether... Uh, it would have to continue with those areas of common European rules in the broadcasting sector, because if it was willing to do so, then it might well meet with the support of the European Union. On the other hand, if the if the United Kingdom wanted to take advantage of Brexit and perhaps depart from some of those European rules, then that would be something that would have to be negotiated. Like so many issues of Brexit, there's the trade-off between continuing with the same rules we've had so far which has the advantage of allowing uh, for for good trading relationships versus perhaps in minds of some, what was the point of Brexit, which was the ability to adopt new rules. And the further those rules go away from the existing European rules, the harder it may become to negotiate market access in an area such as broadcasting or indeed other service areas. Um, I'd like to go back to your first point. And you talked about the language um, and the linguistic barriers that might... that people would face or um, organizations would face if they do leave the UK. Dahi, given the the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, what are the implications for broadcasting in general in Northern Ireland? And in particular, what are the implications of the Irish language being broadcasted um, in, in Northern Ireland? This is a really intriguing question. Um, One of the issues that's on the table in the current negotiations, of course, is whether Northern Ireland would continue to have some form of regulatory alignment with the European Union. And that's primarily being debated in relation to trade across the border with the Republic of Ireland. Um, If that regulatory alignment were to include broadcasting, that would be very significant. At the moment, it seems quite unlikely because broadcasting is an area that so far has been reserved to the United Kingdom level. It's not an area that's ever been devolved in Northern Ireland or indeed in Scotland or in Wales, with some limited exceptions, as it happens in relation to language. So the National Assembly for Wales has some control over Welsh language broadcasting. But by and large, as in many federal states around the world, broadcasting is something that the top level of government deals with because it's something that operates across a number of different territories. So it's not something that has been suggested so far in the Northern Irish context 
context, it's a really interesting idea. Uh, if, for instance, a broadcaster based in Northern Ireland um, had some form of special re- uh, regulatory status as compared with broadcasters based in England, that would be a real opportunity for, for Northern Ireland. Now, there's a second point in what you said, in which I guess more directly concerns the question of language and cross-border broadcasting. The fact that the Irish language television network TG Cahar, which is established and regulated in the Republic of Ireland, but is uh, capable of being received and indeed is rebroadcast in Northern Ireland. That was a very important development um, indeed on foot of the 1998 Belfast Agreement um, and the cooperation between the UK and the Republic of Ireland to make the reception of um, television channels, including Irish language television, possible. That was quite a quite a big deal. Um, now, that actually depends in part on the European Union systems because broadcasters um, of any language that are based in the Republic of Ireland, of course, can benefit from the country of origin principle and don't face regulatory hurdles when they are rebroadcast in Northern Ireland or indeed in any part of the United Kingdom. Certainly, that, uh, disturbing an issue like that was not the intention of Brexit, but as in so many cases in relation to Northern Ireland, these issues arise at a much later stage. They may have been flagged by people in relevant industries or indeed based in Northern Ireland, but there was very little discussion at the UK level of what the implications might be for many cross-border relationships. And indeed, the question you've highlighted of Irish language broadcasting is a good example of what might seem in Brexit terms to be a very small question, but for those affected is actually quite significant. It is is interesting that a lot of things, and like you said, a lot of things that come out as negotiations go through either was pushed aside or not thought of in true depth until you actually have to negotiate about it. And I think March 2019 is deadline for Brexit. And And it looks like at this stage there'll be some form of transitional arrangements, which at least buy a little bit of time, because many of the issues that we're talking about today in relation to, I suppose, what might be considered conventional television broadcasting, they do also arise in the broader online and Mm e-commerce context. At the moment, many international tech firms are based in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, By being regulated in the Republic of Ireland, they have ease of market access to the United Kingdom, as well as to the rest of the European Union. Um, it would be quite difficult for some of those firms to uh, to sustain that if there's major legal divergence. They might choose to open offices in Northern Ireland, which would be to the advantage, I guess, of the Northern Irish economy. Mm. Or they may double down on their presence in the Republic of Ireland because the Republic of Ireland being um, a state with a, a, an English-speaking population, um, a clear membership of the European Union and no intention of changing. So actually, in terms of competition for international investment in the tech sector, there may be very clear reasons why Dublin rather than Belfast is the preferred base. And you think that's going to be the tr- same with broadcasting as well? It could it could well be. I mean, the there hasn't been a long record of international broadcasters setting up in the Republic of Ireland as compared to the United Kingdom. The UK has done a terrific job over the last three decades of making itself the base of choice for broadcasters from around Europe and indeed from around the world. Um, the Republic of Ireland has never really gone out and sought to recruit broadcasters. There are some initial indications that broadcasters are investigating the options of moving to Dublin or to Amsterdam, which is a major centre for broadcasting industry and again has, has access to international markets 
English speaking talent and so forth. Um, but in so many areas, it will depend on what the negotiations get to, because if the UK agrees to continue to take part in the European broadcasting regulatory system, then there may not be a need to do so. But in other areas of the tech industry affected by things like data protection law, we already see the UK trying to stay aligned with European systems so as to avoid that flight to Dublin or elsewhere. Um, the growing practice in the European Union is that you're regulated once according to common principles. Uh, that is seen as a much more durable investment and it's also a way of creating a European market rather than setting up um, 27 or 28 separate offices all following different rules. That's been a key part of the, pro of the project of European integration and the tech and media industries are certainly no exception. In fact, in some cases, they stand to benefit because if you're doing business online, then you already have the potential to access multiple markets from a single base. And it would rather seem to cut the legs from that if you then had to go through separate legal systems for a service that doesn't actually require a physical presence in all of those states. Let's go back to the money a little bit. Sure. So I'm Dublin and tech industries and broadcasting industries have come into me and said, you know, you, you look like a, a possible choice. We're going to leave. I don't want to keep it in the, in the UK. I think London has had its chance. What is the UK's response to that? Well, how, like, if the UK, do they have a response to that? Like, do they have anything to say, all right, so this is my creative solution. Theresa May hasn't come up with this, but this is Dahi's creative solution. What does that look like? The major selling point for the United Kingdom for the broadcasting industry would be the available expertise and talent. The UK has very strong creative industries. Um, it has, not just in the broadcasting area, but all the other things you need to support uh, a television service from the technical side, from the editorial side and so on. Uh, that's always been a strength of the UK by European standards. So the argument would be that if you move to another jurisdiction, you might have a regulatory benefit, but you're still going to have to recruit staff, build facilities and so on. Much of this actually comes down to economies of scale. So if you are, for instance, a large US broadcaster and you, you operate, as in the case of, say, Discovery or MTV, you operate 20 or 30 different services for different markets and languages and variants and so on, what they've tended to do is build a, a big shed somewhere near Heathrow Airport and do all of the work there so that you can share technicians and satellite facilities and, and, and so on. So the UK would say, well, look, these facilities are there. They're well run. They've been well supported. You've got access to all, everything you, you need. Um, why, would you, why would you give that up? The difficulty for that strategy, I guess, is it would still depend on the willingness of EU member states to accept broadcasts emanating from the UK um, if, for instance, uh, the each member state treated a UK broadcaster as a foreign broadcaster and said it had to comply with a different set of rules or had to pay a licensing fee in order to be rebroadcast in that state or any of those possibilities. There's very little the UK could do about that other than go back into trade negotiations. So that's something else the UK would have to say to broadcasters, that uh, the UK will negotiate for market access on behalf of UK established broadcasters, wherever the world they may have come from or whatever language they may be operating in. We're 
To some extent, we're already seeing that in the financial services industry. The UK government is making a clear pitch to uh, to international banks that it will take their interests seriously when it comes to those negotiations. And that's why Theresa May's reference to broadcasting, a very rare prime ministerial reference to this industry, was significant because, in my view, it was intended to send that signal to broadcasters that were considering their options that it may not be necessary to do so because in the transition period, the UK would negotiate a settlement that would allow for continued market access. I think that reference in her speech was a very deliberate signal to say that the, the what might be the panicked answer, which is moving to Ireland or Netherlands or elsewhere, um, might not be necessary because the UK government would stand up for broadcasters, perhaps in a way that other governments would not. And do you think this will happen in soon or in a very distant future? I'd be very surprised if it happened soon. Um, it's clearly an issue that has taken on a certain degree of importance, but it is still a niche. It's not something that's particularly well known. Most UK television uh, viewers would have no idea that the Swedish broadcasting industry is, in a legal sense, established in the United uh, Kingdom. We might think that we have hundreds of channels accessible on a satellite or cable platform, but many of the services that are regulated in the UK, you're never even going to see them on your television. So I think the scale of the problem isn't as well understood as perhaps some of the more obvious issues in agriculture or medicine, where those trading relationships are understood um, by the public at large. The broadcasting issue, important as I might make it out to be, is still something that has not really got into wide public consciousness at this stage. So it would be very surprising if it was resolved quickly. I think it's on the agenda, but I think it might still be a wee bit down the agenda. You mentioned a few times about some trade agreements that are in place. You've mentioned, you know, global agreements, not just within the EU, but different um, countries coming in and doing trade agreements. And if Theresa May is putting some importance to it now, how do you think the trade agreements should start to look? There's a lot of division at the international level over how to deal with broadcasting and I guess wider cultural issues under international trade law. Um, for instance, the relationship between Canada and the United States in trading terms has had broadcasting as one of the most contentious areas. And it has led, for instance, to the Canadian government being very vocal on the international stage that trade agreements should not be used as a way of uh, removing national level protections in relation to uh, to cultural industries or indeed to bilingual and multilingual policies. If you are, for instance, the Canadian government, the idea of unfettered access from US media industries is a significant threat to Canadian culture, but also to the way in which English and French are given legal status in Canada. And those relationships recur around the the, the world. Even in the post-war trade agreement, um, the French government was very vocal in ensuring that quotas for cinema works were, um, were protected in what was becoming the post-war trade system. Because even at that point, the concern that free trade meant Hollywood would have 
the 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 market all over the world and that na- nation states could do nothing about that that was so clear even at that stage and it has meant that in successive rounds of international trade negotiations there is either some form of cultural exception clause that says this agreement does not prohibit the protection of culture or um, the way in which the agreement is defined steps away from those regulatory issues and focuses for instance on authors rights as in the case of intellectual uh, property. There's been some really interesting work in this area. One of the UN specialised agencies, UNESCO, mm. drew up a convention on cultural diversity about 10 years ago. Um, the United States was very critical of it um, because it was seen as something that maybe went against the grain of liberalisation of trade. But many states, both from the, um, from the uh, so-called developed and developing worlds, made common cause around the importance of putting culture on the table, at least in in international law. So the way in which you reconcile UNESCO's work on culture, the World Trade Organization's work, that's still being worked out at an international level. And it's into that mix that the UK's objectives in relation to broadcasting law would go. So Dahi, finally, what are the implications for the consumer um, with broadcasting and Brexit? The consumer is really affected by this because if you have a complaint about broadcasting standards or even to some extent advertising on a broadcaster, you need to go to the regulator of that television channel. So that would be for many broadcasters across Europe, that would be Ofcom here in the UK. And any changes to that would affect the options available or the remedies available to consumers in the same way that uh, data protection law and other areas of European law depend so much on where a company is established and the regulator of that country. So there could be big changes ahead for consumers and for consumer protection in media and related technological areas. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I think we're more knowledgeable about the the impact on broadcasting and Brexit. Thank you, Dahi, for again, for coming on the show today. And again, your book is called Medium Law. And where can people access the book? Or Unfortunately, in the nature of academic publishing, it's very expensive hardback, but there is an ebook available on all the standard ebook platforms. Okay. And I hope people uh, who are interested in the field or who might become interested in the field would enjoy reading it. And your blog again, can you just tell people a little bit more about that Didn't, and just to know where they can get access it if they are interested in the topic? Yes, they can see it on the Brexit Law NI blog or on my own blog, which is lexferenda.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, great. Thank you, Dahi. All right. <laughs> You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Shirley Alcius, Emily Lowe, Rebecca Corbett, Emma McMillan, and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's Law School and Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Dahi Maksihi for being our guest today. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter at QUB Law Pod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Shirley Alcius, and you've been listening to Law Pod.